and welcome to Elevating Founders, a podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers and disruptors in the tech sector who are responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges. Brought to you by London Tech Week and Founders Forum. Hello and welcome if this is your first time listening in or welcome back if you're a returning listener. In today's episode, Lynn Anderson-Clark, Strategic Partnerships Lead at Founders Factory, speaks to Eric Schmidt, former CEO and chairman of Google and co-founder of Schmidt Futures, about why future founders should solve the world's biggest problems. Their conversation explores how the startup ecosystem can increase impact investing, finessing the balancing act of profit and purpose, what entrepreneurial culture is like in the UK, and Eric's top tips for success. Spoiler alert, it's about shots on goal. At the end of the session, fellow sort of founders of the Future Programme put their burning questions to Eric to gather his insights and expertise. To find out more about Founders of the Future programmes and events, visit our website at foundersofthefuture.co or our Twitter at founders underscore future. I'll hand over to Lynn to introduce Eric and kick off the conversation. I'm Lynn Anderson-Clark, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Eric Schmidt today to talk about something near and dear to both of us, why the next generation of founders should focus on the world's greatest problems. Now, Eric needs no introduction, especially with this crowd, but I'm going to attempt to give him one. Eric Schmidt is an accomplished technologist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. As Google's chief executive officer, he pioneered Google's transformation from a Silicon Valley startup to a global leader in technology. In addition to transforming Google, one could argue he's touched all of our lives with products such as Google Search, Maps, email, and fundamentally, how the world's information is organized. And if you need any further information, you can Google it. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Eric Schmidt. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much, Lynn, and great to see you. Thank you. So, Eric, you are best known for getting the most out of young founders with Larry and Sergey. And what we want to learn from you today is how to replicate that and how to support the next generation of entrepreneurs so we can better this world. So to get right into it, what are the most pressing challenges facing society today? Well, there's such a long list. Uh, let's start with the pandemic. And <clears throat> obviously, our governments have collectively failed us. Uh, everything that you can do to ameliorate the situation, to increase the rate of testing, uh, to help us understand how to manage this disease. It's not going to go away in six months or a year. It'll be with us forever. Um, hopefully, we can get it to the point where it's in a box in the way that the flu is. But at the moment, it's uh, the damage that the pandemic is doing is so much larger than any of the other concerns people have. Think about the increase in inequality that's occurring because of the pandemic. Think of the impact on women um, who have a tougher time anyway because of all their other duties. Think of the impact on essentially uh, underserved minorities uh, in typical examples. I, I can just go on and on and on. So we need to address that and any ideas are welcome. The biggest area of promise is probably the application of artificial intelligence to solving problems that have heretofore been unsolvable. And whether that's in chemistry or synthetic biology or the way people operate or language or education, uh, that's probably the next big area. 
Uh, but I'm one of these people, as you know, Lynn, who believes in the power of a founder's vision. So I'm going to let the founders tell me what they think is most important, and I'm going to encourage them to run and work work really hard at it. Wonderful. So, so we've got pandemic, we've got inequality, we've got so many of these issues. What are the ways where we can encourage more entrepreneurs to tackle these problems? Well, it's interesting that um, people have a funny bias about entrepreneurs because at some level, entrepreneurs are risky. They are disruptive in in certain ways. And societies seem as they mature to become less dynamic and less entrepreneur friendly. There's more and more regulations, et cetera. In my years in working in Europe uh, and in Britain, um, it's interesting that, that talking about entrepreneurs, you get this sort of head shake, like, yes, I understand. And then nothing happens because nobody wants to take the risk. So let me give you an example. And we'll pick on Europe because it's always a good target. Um, imagine a situation where a small company could be founded in one day, and that small company could be uh, managed uh, up to 10 employees without a lot of regulations except for health and safety. In other words, let's just make it really easy to start 10-person companies. And when you got to 11, well, then all the other rules would apply. That would be a simple way to accelerate what Founders Forum is trying to do at scale. And I, one of the things about entrepreneurship that I learned is it's about shots on goal. So I was very, very lucky that I found Larry and Sergey, who were brilliant founders, and I worked with them collectively. And that's a thousand and a one or a million and a one shot. There were so many that didn't make it. And you need a lot of shots on goal or whatever your metaphor is. Now, what's interesting about Britain is Britain, starting in London and Cambridge, and now with some success in Oxford and other places, is beginning to build that entrepreneurial culture, and that's fantastic. Excellent. So I want to turn now to Schmidt Futures, which is an organization you started, which the aim is to advance society through science and technology um, and work together across fields. I know you put $1 billion of your own money behind this, so I know it's something you feel very passionately about. Can you tell us more about the initiative and what you're trying to accomplish with it? Well, you and I have actually talked about this over the years, and I started off focused on science because I figured science was what got me and Google and all of us to, to our current level of success. In other words, we, we need to recognize that we didn't do this ourselves, that we built on the shoulders of great giants right, who really helped us along the way. And that uh, things like the microprocessor revolution, the GPS, all of those were necessary preconditions for the smartphone and the networks and so forth that we take for granted today. Um, when, I, when I showed up at Google, by the way, people would say, oh yeah, we had a terabyte of this. And I said, do you have any idea how big a terabyte is? And they'd say, oh, it's not that big. And I'd say, well, let me tell you, when, when I was doing this, this is what a megabyte was, and this is a gigabyte and so forth. And, and the technology has moved so quickly that people don't take a moment to credit the, the generation before. So we always have to start with that. What, what, I think, what, what I think now is that we should focus really on the exceptional talents that underlie entrepreneurship and science and so forth. To be very blunt, 
There are people who are simply exceptionally talented. We see this in the arts. Everyone accepts that. It's also true in science. It's true in leadership. It's true in verbal skills. It's true in, in every conceivable thing. So I thought the best way to apply the gifts that I've received through my service at Google was to focus on that. We announced a program with the Rhodes Trust called RISE, which as an example, which is an attempt to identify the top initially 116-year-olds around the world many of whom are going to be in countries where they don't have access to the kind of educational systems and opportunities that frankly everyone who's part of Founders Forum and this next generation of leadership you've had. Well, what about the people who are stuck in some bunker somewhere and who are as smart as you, if not smarter? How do we get them to their highest potential? So I ultimately concluded that talent was the, talent was the real vector and that's where the billion dollars goes with partners. Amazing. So. Going, going off of this talent-first approach, if you were to walk into a high school uh, anywhere in the world and you would have to pick out, using whatever process you'd like to use, uh, that next brilliant founder that can change the world, what would be the process to do that or how would you go about that? Well, it, I guess I've done this long enough that I've developed some uh, at least biases as to what that person might look like and there are always exceptions. Uh, there's always the person who's nonverbal, who can't communicate, but somehow writes in a way that's extraordinary. But my experience is that, that the sort of exceptional people do everything well. So they write well, they are analytical, they speak well, they have a sense of reasoning. Um, the scientists say that this is uh, type, essentially type two thinking, that they can think deeper, Right. So what I always try to do when I meet somebody young is I ask them, tell me about your world. And I see if they say something perceptive or new, as opposed to reading the uh, repeating the zeitgeist. And if, if someone can deliver an insight and an idea that they're passionate about, that's a pretty good predictor that they're going to be successful. There's a lot of literature about grit. And people are probably familiar with this, that it's not just raw horsepower, you know, the ability to compute faster in your head. It's also pers persistence and perseverance. We, I, over the years, I've known quite a few people who were so smart they couldn't get through the day. And of course, nothing happened as a result. Or they had emotional problems or family problems or what have you, and they couldn't. And that's a lost opportunity. So it seems to me that you need both. You need that quickness, which is insight, it's thinking, it's passion, and so forth. But you also need resilience. And resilience is something that's not really taught, except perhaps in your family, or maybe it's genetic, I don't really know, but that ability to keep hearing and know. So if you think about entrepreneurs, the entrepreneur you want to work with is the one which, when they hear that the big company has just stolen the property, product, making a huge copy and entering the market, that entrepreneur, instead of wilting away, oh my God, oh, a disaster, instead they double down and they work harder and they work quicker because they have a strong opponent. They rise to the challenge. And I think that's the characteristic that you're looking for in leadership. Something you said that really stuck with me was, as tell me about your world. And if you can get insight from that, I feel like that's gonna be my new question. When I interview people for our company, I feel like that's just tell me about your world. I think it's so simple, but can be really insightful. Founders, especially young founders, I think are terrified of making mistakes. It's something that I think about quite frequently. Can you make us all feel a bit better and tell us about a mistake or two that you've made? Well, I've made so many. Um, 
one of the things about success is that you don't have to make all the decisions correctly, but you have to make some of them correctly. I remember talking to my friend and board member, John Doerr, who'd recruited me to Google like, a couple of years into it. And I said, John, you know, I'm really, really happy with this. It was the right decision. I'm so grateful to you for giving me this opportunity. I said it in a really nice way. And he said, well, you did one thing right. And I said, expecting some list of achievements. And he said, you said yes. Two people before you said no. And I, and I, I tell you that story to say, sometimes the opportunity that's before you is confusing but good judgment is really important. I was extremely fortunate in one thing, which is I said yes to a young opportunity. And since uh, I should talk about Brent for a minute and Founders Forum, Founders Forum has been around since I've been going to tech stuff in London. And he sort of pioneered this model in Europe incredibly successfully. And these opportunities What's interesting is in, in, in when you see them, they seem small, and then five years later, they're immense corporations. So the formula that was invented by, by the combination of Founders Forum and what we're doing today works. And what you, re you don't realize you're making history when you are. All you think is, oh, these are smart people. This is interesting. So a lot of success, what I would say, is, has to do with being in the right group, right? So in my case, I had worked with John when I was at Sun. Uh, I met Larry and Sergey. I said, uh, this is too raw for me. It's too risky. John said, oh, you'll do fine. You'll like it. It's really high potential. Give it a try. And so that influence, so the network that I had really helped me. And I think it's, under, it's underestimated how important these networks of founders are. It's, under, it's uh, underestimated how important the judgment part is, especially with young founders, because they simply haven't done things long enough to have had the experience. So saying yes, saying yes is important. Um, you are a big advocate of diversity, and I think diversity in its widest sense. Can you share not only your view on diversity, but how it's going to help us address getting more young entrepreneurs to solve these challenges? One answer about diversity is that uh, it's a pure business argument. If you look at diverse teams, they produce better. There's plenty of, uh, plenty of science around this. So for all the sort of white guys who sort of collect themselves in little cabals, they're underperforming, excuse the stereotype, they are underperforming what they could do if they worked in a more diverse environment. There's plenty of literature to this effect. And diversity brings in different views. And when it's well-managed, right, you can build a consensus that's stronger. And often the diverse view is the non-consensus view, and often the non-consensus view is the winning view. So in other words, people, because they're the same, they have the same. So diversity is not just about people, it's also about the way, the way you listen to things and so forth and so on. Um, and so, so diversity inclusion, which is sort of the mantra, really reflects diverse people and, and the inclusivity of their approaches and ideas. Now, in a hierarchy, there has to be a decider, right? So the ideal scenario is that you allow this diversity inclusion to occur, and when the, you pick that. And if you don't have a best idea, you have the wrong team. Mm. 
So your job as an executive is to organize the people. And what happens with founders is by the nature of being founders, they, they have to be super, superhuman at everything. And they tend to want to make all the decisions. Whereas my job as CEO was to make no decisions except the ones that were really important and otherwise run the process. And I think for, for your young founders, they have to do everything. But most importantly, they have to do is they have to build a team that will get them through the growth stage. Um, the canonical failure in Europe has been that the companies wouldn't scale to a certain size. They would become medium-sized co companies, but they didn't have the leadership maturity. They sold out too early. That was sort of the canonical view. I think in Britain, we're beginning to see some companies, and we're seeing a few in Europe that are, that are large-scale companies. But it's still the case that America has an advantage in building large-scale companies, as does China, for whatever set of reasons. And I think one of the secrets is to build a team that is diverse and inclusive, but also one that will scale with the company. Uh, because that's, it's ultimately the value of the company is in the people in the company and really not much else. Right. And we both grew up in the U.S., kind of going down that kind of differences between the U.S. and the U.K. And we actually both grew up in Virginia. Um, I know we alluded it, alluded to it prior, but I think in the U.S. there can be this um, thought of, of failure can be celebrated. And, and a lot of times you'll hear a founder say, well, you're not really a founder unless you failed two times and, and kind of get yourself back up and dust yourself off. And I think in the UK, um, I think there's a bit more of a stigma attached to that failure. Um, and I think it's just a cultural difference. But can you give us your your view on you know risk appetite and failure and what we might be able to learn from from your view on that um if you look at the most successful companies in my world they're almost universally founded by people in their early to mid 20s and when you look at pictures of these people they look like children compared to what they are now uh, so go back and look at pictures of Steve Jobs when Apple was founded or Bill Gates when Microsoft was founded. Um, so it looks to me like the skills that we're talking about break early. In other words, that the, the skills of Michael Dell, right, uh, founded Dell in his dorm room. And th there's just a long pattern of this. So what I would suggest is that the way to solve the perception and, and structural problem is to focus on precisely the group that we're talking about now, which are younger founders, and get them empowered to win, right? There's something about the challenge to authority, the nonconformity of young people that is, they're, it's politically correct to say, well, everyone can be a founder and so forth and so on. But let me just observe that the majority of the companies were founded by very young people who often had very, very discordant ideas, very different ideas about how to run the companies, how to behave, you know, they're controversial. Um, and that's the success. If you look at Elon Musk, right, he's been a founder. Look at um, uh, Travis uh, and Uber. He, Uber was his fourth company, right? Again, these are controversial, but very impactful people. We need more such people, not fewer. And they will test the system, but they will ultimately add enormous wealth to the society if they're, if they're allowed to be successful. That's great. Um, so we will be throwing to questions 
very shortly. So Ben Fisher, get, get ready. You're going to be up next. Um, but I want to switch gears really quickly because I learned a lot from your pad, your podcast, Reimagine with Eric Schmidt. Um, and if the audience out there has not listened to it yet, it is like a masterclass in geopolitical what's happening. I mean, just listen to that for an hour. You don't need an MBA in my opinion. Um, but it's all about how to rebuild a better post COVID-19 society. And what I wanted to talk to you about is the amount of information you must have to distill and, and get and process in order to be able to talk about all of these things is enormous. What is your information routine? How can we kind of learn from what you do to kind of get all of the, the information that we need to be, to be great founders? Um, so, so the podcast is called Reimagine with Eric Schmidt. And um, it's an attempt for me to bring a little bit more rational discourse into the politicized and sort of crazy stuff. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get some, some substantive conversations. And so if you have the patience for a podcast, which I think this audience does, I hope people enjoy it. Um, as an executive, you get very good at processing an awful lot of information every day and keeping the important aspects. Um, when I was a scientist, the whole idea was to be incredibly narrowly focused. And as an executive, you need to be broadly focused. And so it's a skill that you can learn. And what I found works is for me personally is just talking to people because if you listen to people, which is often hard for people because they prefer to talk and listen to themselves, you'd be amazed what insight and nuance you can get from the approaches. So I always ask people, what's most important to you? What's going on? How does it feel to be you? And that forms the matrix that I then apply the written sources. Um, one of my great regrets is that the internet and social media has made it almost impossible for at least me to read books, right? My attention span has gotten shorter. I don't know about if you have that problem, but I used to be able to read a book a week on an airplane. And now I spend that air on that airplane. I guess we're not traveling that much, but in theory on the airplane working, doing my email and so forth. Yeah. Um, I do worry that I don't have enough time for that sort of long thinking, sort of the deep thinking. Um, and I, the young people that I work with have various mechanisms for that. So for example, when they're working on something really hard, they'll turn their phone off and really concentrate on writing this paragraph or doing this formula. Then they turn their phone back on. <laughs> but you need some mechanism to address the attention deficit problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is now time to take a few questions from our young founders. And again, this is a really interesting group um, between 16 and 30, part of the Founders of the Future Fellowship. So I'm now going to throw it to Anne Lore. Is that right, Anne Lore? Yes, that's right. Welcome. So uh, please go ahead with your question to Eric. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eric. That was super interesting. And what you just said about deep thinking really resonated with me. I, I do put my phone in another room too when I'm working. So thanks for saying that. And um, how, how, how long do you do it for? Uh, sometimes like only 15 minutes if I really need to not be distracted and sometimes for an hour. But my I, God, an hour. I'm impressed. <laughs> Good job. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm managing my addiction, basically. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my, my question is, um, when it comes to both educating and inspiring uh, the founders of the, the future, when and where do you think this should happen? Like, do you think this is something that should happen as early as possible in childhood or through lifelong learning, through schools? Uh, should someone else take care of it? So... Yeah, I've had lots of debates about this with friends, and I would love to hear your opinion on this. Well, I'd be interested in your opinion on this. Um, my take of this is that the entrepreneurial skills are probably visible at 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. And so you could imagine high schools or whatever high schools are called um, in whatever country we're talking about could begin to have the equivalent of entrepreneurship clubs where the students teach each other. Um, the, the most effective education is where students teach each other something that they think the, the, the teachers don't understand. And so if, you know, one, one project would be to try to kick off high school entrepreneurship and college entrepreneurship um, that's really student-led. Um, but if you follow it, if you're gonna be the next Michael Dell or what have you, and found the company in your dorm room, you better have been exposed to the concept that it was okay to do so by 15 or 16. So it's pretty early. Yeah, this is uh, because you asked what I thought about it. I, I tend to agree with you. And at the same time, part of me don't want to leave behind all of the people who didn't have the opportunity to yeah. get that inspiration and education. And, uh, and I think there are founders that have the skills, have the intelligence necessary to be an entrepreneur and maybe lack the confidence uh, because they haven't been told that this isn't something that they can do. So yeah, I, I agree with you. And at the same time, I would love to see more initiatives for people who haven't realized yet by age 30 or 40 that they can actually do it. I, I think that, uh, well, first of all, I think that's exactly correct. And um, I teach venture capital at Stanford, and we've been studying um, what I'll call older, older successful executives who are typically in their 30s and 40s. And um, they have, it works well too, and they have different risk profiles. So the key thing has to do with appetite for risk and the belief in yourself. And so you have to be willing, you have to be willing to say, I'm gonna give it a try. In my case, I left a large company to go give it a try with Larry and Sergey at Google because it was just so interesting. But, but I was able to do that precisely because I had been successful enough that I had enough money to have a house and a car and the kids in school and so forth. So my risk tolerance was not, uh, it, wasn't that, it wasn't as risky as it may have sound. It wasn't like I was going to end up on the street, if you will. Absolutely, yes. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Amlor. I'm now gonna throw it to Ben. Ben. Uh, tell us your question for Eric. Hi. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of building on the uh, point you raised a minute ago uh, about what you're talking about politically. So, um, at the moment, like, we're living in a somewhat divided world, and politically, it seems countries have become more nationalistic and isolated, especially due to the pressures of coronavirus. This seems to be in stark contrast to the openness and inclusivity that we promote online. And um, Google was famously blocked in China's Great Firewall. And recently, more technology services have been banned by different states and uh, different embargoes. So I just kind of wanted to hear what your thoughts are on political censoring of information. And so, so my answer is pretty simple. Um, 
every one of these restrictions that's put in around speech and commerce is going to hurt us globally. I would much rather have a global network and deal with some of the consequences of that. And as you know, the rise of nationalism is an easy excuse to begin to limit speech, limit access, and so forth. And there are all sorts of people who would like to, for example, promote a local competitor and so forth. But from my perspective, the genius of what we've built, as you said, Ben, sort of notion of this one global platform, I would fight hard for that. And I think for you in particular, think about how much harder it will be for your company if there are a hundred different networks and a hundred different ways in which they operate. It's likely that we're going to end up with sort of a Chinese-centric one and a Western-centric one, right, because of the actions that you can see. I, I, I obviously can't, don't know what will happen, but I don't like that. But let's see if we can keep it to two and not 10. Well said. Thank you very um, much. Thank you so much, Ben. We've got one final question from the group from Nadal. Hello, Eric. Yeah. It's nice to meet you. Hi, I hope you're well. glad I'm just sitting in the park. Uh, it's really nice weather here. Um, I was watching an interview actually last week uh, where you were saying, as a founder, when you're starting a company, you should be dreaming big, hire interesting people, and try to have a five-year plan, because uh, most people too, tend to have two or three-year plan. I want to challenge you a little bit of thinking the next 10, 20 years as a young entrepreneur. What do you think are the most crucial aspects we should try to fix or solve using the tech and the AI and the quantum computing. And the second part of that question is, as we grow, uh, how do we ensure as leaders to make sure that we protect uh, of not being evil, as they say, uh, and, and, and have that emphasis from the ground up? I think that you made a really interesting uh, comment with a company in Japan where they have this Kanban system where they can stop at any point where they feel that the product is not right. How do we make sure that big companies, as they grow, they have that emphasis? Um, but firstly, what should we focus on as, as young tech entrepreneurs? So, so what I like about your question is most people have trouble thinking about five years, and you're already thinking 10 or 15. Um, and a lot of the answer to your question has to do with the values of the founder. That's why it's so special to be a founder. You get to decide the kind of company that you want. And my advice on that is imagine when you have 100 people is this how you want it to behave? Or will you be proud of the way they interact? Will you be proud of their values? This is the time to set it because once it's set, it's very difficult to change. Once culture is set, it's very difficult to alter in any particular way. Uh, when I go back to 20 years from now, I think there's some things to say. The world will be much more populous. Uh, there'll be many, many more people in Asia and many, many more people in Africa. So the global needs of the platform will be far greater. Um, I'm assuming that for the rest of my lifetime and perhaps yours, the battle structurally between the Chinese model and the Western model will continue, not because one is better than the other, but because there's simply so much money at stake for both. So I would try to figure out a way to bridge that in an interesting way. Um, I think it's fair to say that in the next 10 to 15 years, there'll be enormous advances in both biology more broadly, as well as in software and AI, but in particular in complicated systems. So not only will there be more people, but the systems that you will be building in 15 years will be infinitely more complicated than the ones you're building now. I'll give you an example. Uh, one day I went in to look at the Google spreadsheet people, 
And I figured it was like a team of like 12 people. Well, by the time you look at Google Docs, it was 150 people. And I said, how could you possibly need 150 people to do Google Docs, which is a fantastic product, by the way. And the answer was, well, we need this and 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 this. Okay. And by the way, that's what it takes to have a fantastic product. So you should imagine that one of your challenges is going to be managing the complexity of the platforms that you're building. And I think that's often not understood. But in fact, the decisions you make now will determine that level of complexity, get that right. Makes sense. That's awesome. Wonderful. Thank you, Natal. Thank you. Um, so we are coming to the end of our session, sadly. Um, but just to kind of continue on on the, the larger picture of tech, because Eric, I think you are one of the most qualified and fascinating people to talk to about this. So we both believe that tech will be addressing the largest uh, problems in the future. So whether that's you know inequality, pandemic, et cetera. Um, but then there's also this falling trust in the public, and you know the Edelman Barometer Trust 2020. Uh, largest dip um, in recorded history for, for, for big tech. And then you've got unelected leaders, you know, kind of shaping geopolitical things. How do we reconcile the great promises of tech with that falling public trust? You know, the trust is earned and lost over time. And um, people try to sort of say, well, I want to promote my brand. Well, the best way to establish a brand is to do something useful. So my general comment about trust is people will trust the system if it's trustworthy, if it makes sense. But if they find stuff in the system, uh, social media being the most obvious, which they find reprehensible, then their trust level will be, will be lower. So I always start with an, you know, uh, search inside yourself argument. You better make the product itself good. Uh, in Google's case, when, when we were learning how to build our advertising system, we would have gains. And we, we ultimately came to a model where we would take half the gain to revenue, which is to the shareholders, and half the gain to improving the search accuracy. That was how we balanced it. And if we had only done one or the other, I don't think we would have been successful. We had both masters. So my advice would be, my, my advice would be to try to find a way to balance it to earn the trust. And if you do that, eventually the politics will work itself out. Wonderful. Um, wonderful way to close the session. Again, unfortunately, our time has come to an end. Eric, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you join me today. Thank you for your time and your insight on such an important topic. And thank you, thank you to all. And I, I look forward to having all of you become enormously successful and talking about meeting you from here. Thanks very much. That's it for this week's episode of Elevating Founders. If you have any questions or comments, head over to our social channels linked in the show notes to join the conversation or email us at elevatingfounders@informa.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you next time.